At first I was astonished, but very soon I became awfully curious to see what he would find out from me. I couldn't possibly imagine what I had in me to make it worth his while. It was very pretty to see how he baffled himself, for in truth my body was full only of chills, and my head had nothing in it but that wretched steamboat business. It was evident he took me for a perfectly shameless prevaricator. At last he got angry, and to conceal a movement of furious annoyance, he yawned. I rose. Then I noticed a small sketch in oils on a panel representing a woman, draped and blindfolded, carrying a lighted torch. The background was somber, almost black. The movement of the woman was stately, and the effect of the torchlight on her face was sinister. It arrested me, and he stood by civilly, holding an empty half-pint champagne bottle, medical comforts, with the candle stuck in it. To my question, he said, Mr. Kurtz had painted this, in this very station more than a year ago, while waiting for means to go to his trading post. Tell me, pray, said I, who is this Mr. Kurtz? The chief of the inner station, he answered in a short tone, looking away. Much obliged, I said, laughing. And you are the brickmaker of the central station. Everyone knows that. He was silent for a while. He is a prodigy, he said at last. He is an emissary of pity and science and progress, and devil knows what else. We want, he began to declaim suddenly, for the guidance of the cause entrusted to us by Europe, so to speak, higher intelligence, wide sympathies, a singleness of purpose. Who says that, I asked. Lots of them, he replied. Some even write that. And so he comes here, a special being, as you ought to know. Why ought I to know? I interrupted, really surprised. He paid no attention. Yes, today he is the chief of the best station. Next year he will be assistant manager. Two years more and... But I dare say you know what he will be in two years' time. You are of the new gang, the gang of virtue. The same people who sent him specially also recommended you. Oh, don't say no. I've my own eyes to trust. Light dawned upon me. My dear aunt's influential acquaintances were producing an unexpected effect upon that young man. I nearly burst into a laugh. Do you read the company's confidential correspondence? I asked. He hadn't a word to say. It was great fun. When Mr. Kurtz, I continued severely, is general manager, you won't have the opportunity. He blew the candle out suddenly, and we went outside. The moon had risen. Black figures strolled about listlessly, pouring water on the glow. Whence proceeded a sound of hissing. Steam ascended into the moonlight. The beaten nigger groaned somewhere. What a row the brute makes, said the indefatigable man with the mustaches, appearing nearest. Serve him right. Transgression, punishment, bang. Pitiless, pitiless. That's the only way. This will prevent all conflagrations for the future. I was just telling the manager, he noticed my companion, and became crestfallen all at once. Not in bed yet, he said with a kind of servile hardiness. It's natural. Ha! Danger! Agitation! He vanished. I went on to the riverside, and the other followed me. I heard a scathing murmur at my ear. Heap of muffs go to. The pilgrims could be seen in knots gesticulating, discussing, 
Several still had their staves in their hands. I verily believe they took those sticks to bed with them. Beyond the fence, the forest stood up spectrally in the moonlight, and through that dim stir, through the faint sounds of that lamentable courtyard, the silence of the land went home to one's very heart, its mystery, its greatness, the amazing reality of its concealed life. The hurt nigger moaned feebly somewhere nearby, and then fetched a deep sigh that made me mend my pace away from there. I felt a hand introducing itself under my arm. "'My dear sir,' said the fellow, "'I don't want to be misunderstood, "'and especially by you, "'who will see Mr. Kurtz long before I can have the pleasure. "'I wouldn't like him to get a false idea of my disposition.' "'I let him run on, this paper-mâché Mephistopheles, "'and it seemed to me that if I tried, "'I could poke my forefinger through him, "'and would find nothing inside but a little loose dirt, maybe.' He, don't you see, had been planning to be assistant manager by and by, under the present man, and I could see that the coming of that Kurtz had upset them both not a little. He talked precipitately, and I did not try to stop him. I had my shoulders against the wreck of my steamer, hauled up on the slope like a carcass of some big river animal. The smell of mud, of primeval mud, by Jove, was in my nostrils. The high stillness of primeval forest was before my eyes. There were shiny patches on the black creek. The moon had spread over everything a thin layer of silver, over the rank grass, over the mud, upon the wall of matted vegetation standing higher than the wall of a temple. Over the great river I could see through a somber gap glittering, glittering, as it flowed broadly by without a murmur. All this was great, expectant, mute while the man jabbered about himself. I wondered whether the stillness on the face of the immensity looking at us two were meant as an appeal or as a menace. What were we who had strayed in here? Could we handle that dumb thing, or would it handle us? I felt how big, how confoundedly big, was that thing that couldn't talk, and perhaps was deaf as well. What was in there? I could see a little ivory coming out from there, and I had heard Mr. Kurtz was in there. I had heard enough about it, too, God knows. Yet somehow it didn't bring any image with it, no more than if I had been told an angel or a fiend was in there. I believed it in the same way one of you might believe there are inhabitants in the planet Mars. I once knew a Scotch sailmaker who was certain, dead sure, there were people in Mars. If you asked him for some idea how they looked and behaved, he would get shy and mutter something about walking on all fours. If you as much as smiled, he would, though a man of sixty, offer to fight you. I would not have gone so far as to fight for Kurtz, but I went for him near enough to a lie. You know, I hate, detest, and can't bear a lie. Not because I'm straighter than the rest of us, but simply because it appalls me. There is a taint of death, a flavor of mortality in lies, which is exactly what I hate and detest in the world, what I want to forget. It makes me miserable and sick like biting something rotten would do. Temperament, I suppose. Well, I went near enough to it by letting the young fool there believe anything he liked to imagine as to my influence in Europe. I became, in an instant, as much of a pretense as the rest of the bewitched pilgrims. 
This simply because I had a notion it somehow would be of help to that Kurtz whom at the time I did not see, you understand. He was just a word for me. I did not see the man in the name any more than you do. Do you see him? Do you see the story? Do you see anything? It seems to me I'm trying to tell you a dream, making a vain attempt because no relation of a dream can convey the dream sensation, that commingling of absurdity, surprise, and bewilderment in a tremor of struggling revolt, the notion of being captured by the incredible, which is of the very essence of dreams. No, it is impossible. It is impossible to convey the life sensation of any given epoch in one's existence, that which makes its truth, its meaning, its subtle and penetrating essence. It is impossible. We live as we dream, alone. He paused again, as if reflecting, then added, Of course in this you fellows see more than I could then. You see me, whom you know. It had become so pitch dark that we listeners could hardly see one another. For a long time already he, sitting apart, had been no more to us than a voice. There was not a word from anybody. The others might have been asleep, but I was awake. I listened. I listened on the watch for the sentence, for the word that would give me the clue to the faint uneasiness inspired by this narrative that seemed to shape itself without human lips in the heavy night air of the river. Marlowe began again. Yes, I let him run on and think what he pleased about the powers that were behind me. I did. And there was nothing behind me. There was nothing but that wretched old mangled steamboat I was leaning against, while he talked fluently about the necessity for every man to get on. And when one comes out here, you conceive, it is not to gaze at the moon. Mr. Kurtz was a universal genius, but even a genius would find it easier to work with adequate tools, intelligent men. He did not make bricks. Why? There was a physical impossibility in the way as I was well aware, and if he did secretarial work for the manager, it was because no sensible man rejects wantonly the confidence of his superiors. Did I see it? I saw it. What more did I want? What I really wanted was rivets, by heaven. Rivets, to get on with the work, to stop the hole. Rivets I wanted. There were cases of them down at the coast. Cases, piled up, burst, split. You kicked a loose rivet at every second step in that station yard on the hillside. Rivets had rolled into the grove of death. You could fill your pockets with rivets for the trouble of stooping down, and there wasn't one rivet to be found where it was wanted. We had plates that would do, but nothing to fasten them with. And every week the messenger, a lone negro, letter bag on shoulder and staff in hand, left our station for the coast. And several times a week a coast caravan came in with trade goods, ghastly, glazed calico that made you shudder only to look at it, glass beads, value about a penny a quart, confounded spotted cotton handkerchiefs, and no rivets. Three carriers could have brought all that was wanted to set that steamboat afloat. He was becoming confidential now, but I fancy my unresponsive attitude, 
must have exasperated him at last, for he judged it necessary to inform me he feared neither God nor devil, let alone any mere man. I said I could see that very well, but what I wanted was a certain quantity of rivets, and rivets were what really Mr. Kurtz wanted, if he had only known it. Now, letters went to the coast every week, my dear sir, he cried. I write from dictation. I demanded rivets. There was a way for an intelligent man. He changed his manner, became very cold, and suddenly began to talk about a hippopotamus. Wondered whether sleeping on board the steamer, I stuck to my salvage night and day, I wasn't disturbed. There was an old hippo that had the bad habit of getting out on the bank and roaming at night over the station grounds. The pilgrims used to turn out in a body and empty every rifle they could lay hands on at him. Some even sat up a nights for him. All this energy was wasted, though. That animal has a charmed life, he said. But you can say this only of brutes in this country. No man, you apprehend me? No man here bears a charmed life. He stood there for a moment in the moonlight with his delicate hooked nose set a little askew and his mica eyes glittering without a wink. Then, with a curt good night, he strode off. I could see he was disturbed and considerably puzzled, which made me feel more hopeful than I had been for days. It was a great comfort to turn from that chap to my influential friend, the battered, twisted, ruined, tin-pot steamboat. I clambered on board. She rang under my feet like an empty Huntley and Palmer biscuit tin kicked along a gutter. She was nothing so solid in make, and rather less pretty in shape. But I had expended enough hard work on her to make me love her. No influential friend would have served me better. She had given me a chance to come out a bit, to find what I could do. No, I don't like work. I'd rather laze about and think of all the fine things that can be done. I don't like work, no man does. But I like what is in the work, the chance to find yourself. Your own reality, for yourself, not for others. What no other man can ever know. They can only see the mere show and never can tell what it really means. I was not surprised to see somebody sitting aft on the deck with his legs dangling over the mud. You see, I rather chummed with the few mechanics there were in that station, whom the other pilgrims naturally despised, on account of their imperfect manners, I suppose. This was the foreman, a boiler-maker by trade, a good worker. He was a lank, bony, yellow-faced man, with big, intense eyes. His aspect was worried, and his head was as bald as the palm of my hand, but his hair, in falling, seemed to have stuck to his chin, and had prospered in the new locality, for his beard hung down to his waist. He was a widower, with six young children. He had left them in charge of a sister of his to come out there. And the passion of his life was pigeon-flying. He was an enthusiast and a connoisseur. He would rave about pigeons. After work hours, he used sometimes to come over from his hut, for a talk about his children and his pigeons. At work, when he had to crawl in the mud under the bottom of the steamboat, he would tie up that beard of his in a kind of white serviette he had brought for the purpose. It had loops to go over his ears. In the evening he could be seen squatting on the bank, rinsing that wrapper in the creek with great care, then spreading it solemnly on a bush to dry. 
I slapped him on the back and shouted, We shall have rivets. He scrambled to his feet, exclaiming, No, rivets? As though he couldn't believe his ears. Then in a low voice, You, huh? <laughs> I don't know why we behaved like lunatics. I put my finger to the side of my nose and nodded mysteriously. Good for you, he cried, snapped his fingers above his head, lifting one foot. I tried a jig. We capered on the iron deck. A frightful clatter came out of that hulk, and the virgin forest on the other bank of the creek sent it back in a thundering roll upon the sleeping station. It must have made some of the pilgrims sit up in their hovels. A dark figure obscured the lighted doorway of the manager's hut, vanished. Then, a second or so after, the doorway itself vanished too. We stopped, and the silence, driven away by the stamping of our feet, flowed back again from the recesses of the land. The great wall of vegetation, an exuberant and entangled mass of trunks, branches, leaves, boughs, festoons, motionless in the moonlight, was like a rioting invasion of soundless life, a rolling wave of plants, piled up, crested, ready to topple over the creek, to sweep every little man of us out of his little existence. And it moved not. A deadened burst of mighty splashes and snorts reached us from afar, as though an ichthyosaurus had been taking a bath of glitter in the great river. After all, said the boilermaker in a reasonable tone, why should we get the rivets? Why not, indeed? I did not know of any reason why we shouldn't. They'll come in three weeks, I said confidently. But they didn't. Instead of rivets, there came an invasion, an infliction, a visitation. It came in sections during the next three weeks. Each section, headed by a donkey, carrying a white man in new clothes and tan shoes, bowing from that elevation, right and left, to the impressed pilgrims. A quarrelsome band of footsore, sulky niggers trod on the heels of the donkey. A lot of tents, camp stools, tin boxes, white cases, brown bales would be shot down in the courtyard, and the air of mystery would deepen a little over the muddle of the station. Five such installments came, with their absurd air of disorderly flight with the loot of innumerable outfit shops and provision stores that one would think they were lugging after a raid into the wilderness for equitable division. It was an inextricable mess of things, decent in themselves, but that human folly made look like the spoils of thieving. This devoted band called itself the El Dorado Exploring Expedition, and I believe they were sworn to secrecy. Their talk, however, was the talk of sordid buccaneers. It was reckless without hardihood, greedy without audacity, and cruel without courage. There was not an atom of foresight or serious intention in the whole batch of them and they did not seem aware that these things are wanted for the work of the world. To tear treasure out of the bowels of the land was their desire, with no more moral purpose at the back of it than there is in burglars breaking into a safe. Who paid the expenses of the noble enterprise, I don't know, but the uncle of our manager was the leader of that lot. In exterior, he resembled a butcher in a poor neighborhood, and his eyes had a look of sleepy cunning. He carried his fat paunch with ostentation on his short legs, and during the time his gang infested the station, spoke to no one but his nephew. 
You could see these two roaming about all day long with their heads close together in an everlasting confab. I had given up worrying myself about the rivets. One's capacity for that kind of folly is more limited than you would suppose. I said hang, and let things slide. I had plenty of time for meditation, and now and then I would give some thought to Kurtz. I wasn't very interested in him. No. Still, I was curious to see whether this man, who had come out equipped with moral ideas of some sort, would climb to the top after all, and how he would set about his work when there.' 